Bird's Eye View is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find more podcasts like this at BaltimoreSportsReport.com. BaltimoreSportsReport.com. Welcome back to Bird's Eye View. When it comes to the Orioles, this weekly podcast is your official source for a lack of insight and for baseless opinion. Today is Tuesday, October 11th, 2016, my son's sixth birthday, and this is episode 184. My name is Jake English, and I'm here, as always, riding on the coattails of Scott Magnus. If you're listening to my voice right now, you're most likely doing it at our website, which is birdseyeviewbaltimore.com. You can also find us on the Baltimore Sports Report Network, which is over at baltimoresportsreport.com, and you can find us on baseballtalkradio.com as well. Please make sure that you listen to this show on platforms like Google Play Music and iTunes, and please, if you would be so kind, please rate and review the show. It helps others find us. Um, it, that's that whole socializing thing. Speaking of socialization, we're on social media all over the place, but the best place to find us is on Twitter, where we tweet at birdseyeviewbal. And with that, Scotty, it's time for the most important part of the week. What is your drink of the week? Jake, I'm drinking a Rogue Brewing uh, Hazelnut Brown Nectar. Um, I, I can't say that I'm a huge fan of Rogue beers in, in general, um, but this one is actually a really good brown ale for those that are looking for um, a, a nice fall brown ale. So uh, highly recommended. Um, Rogues can sometimes be hits, hits or misses, but this is a hit for me. Um, I would definitely come back and get another six-pack of this. Okay. I uh, fell back on the wagon here. I am actually uh, – <laughs> I've answered the calling. I'm, yeah. I went in and got another uh, four of the calling IPA. So uh, highly recommended. Please drink this beer. It's, That's it's an really excellent good. beer. Excellent yes. beer. Yeah. It's really good. All right, well, so I guess we'll do the medical wing now. Oh. Oh, oh. It's just my broken heart. Yeah. It's just my broken heart. All right, well then. So the that- Brian Roberts watch now? Oh. All right, so this week on the Twitters? This week on the Twitters, here's what's happening in Birdland in 100 characters, 140 characters or fewer. Uh, first of all, let's take a look at a, a take that is not hot. Um, and this one comes from uh, Dan Glickman, who posted the evening of that particular game. You know the one I'm talking about. You know that evening. He tweeted, Buck Showalter is Baltimore's greatest manager since Weaver, period. Carriage return. Buck Buck Showalter made a horrible, boneheaded decision tonight, period. Carriage return. Both can be true. I thought that was a good tweet. I'm going to tell you right now, no one is going to get that carriage return reference that you just made. (laughs) No one. Well, maybe Matt Taylor will, but that's about it. All right, let's go to the next tweet. Uh, we're going to go into the That's the Hope. Yes. Um, this tweet comes from August Fagerstrom. Um, you can follow him at, at AugustFG underscore. He's a daily writer for Fangrass and also a uh, member of the Baseball Writers of America. Uh, it goes as follows. I'd ask Andrew Miller if his game tonight might embody the future of modern bullpen usage. His response I think that certain bullpens are kind of being adjusted right now. There's certain something everyone talks about. Everyone wants to talk about the Royals of the last few years. 
I saw what Boston did in 2013. I was part of Baltimore in 2014. Maybe as more stats come out, we realize there's bigger moments in the game than just the eighth and ninth inning that can be appreciated. And certainly Andrew Miller being called on uh, any plethora of spots during the ALDS series uh, against the Indians and the Red Sox kind of um, exasperated that is the best way and really reemphasized the aspect of leverage index. Uh, and, he, and he embraces that. You know, he's not a player that has the ego and says, give me the ball in the ninth inning or else. He's one of the best relievers in the game. And he says, I want to be in the most critical period of the game, period. Sure. And and to be fair, in previous seasons, we also have players like Darren O'Day do similar and come yeah. in in the seventh inning or the eighth inning or whenever it needed to be happening in order to get out of a certain inning. Whenever Jose Bautista needed to be hit, he was there for us. Yeah. Okay. Um, next, uh, tweet, uh, comes into this is incredibly profound. So this was a tweet from, uh, Noah Syndergaard. Um, and of course at Noah Syndergaard, and this came right after the Mets also lost the wild card game. And it's baseball has a way of ripping your heart out, stabbing it, putting it back in your chest and then healing itself just in time for spring training. Hopefully the Tommy John surgery can also heal for a bunch of the Mets pitchers on that team as well. Yikes. Yeah. All right, last we're going to go to a tweet from Don Petrie, who uh, tweets at Don Petrie. If nothing else, if nothing else good comes from this hashtag Orioles lost, may we at least have a farewell Baltimore on's podcast to do a postmortem on the season? Mm, That's a good question. That would be that morons. That would be nice. But folks, be prepared to be disappointed, just like you're disappointed for the wild card game. Let's go into the not so lovely totals all right so the orioles 2016 season came to a screeching halt on tuesday night with an 11 inning 5-2 to two loss to the Toronto Blue Jays on a walk-off home run. And of course, everyone knows it's listening to this show, so, meh, whatever. But Oh, was there a big game? Did that happen? Yeah, exactly. So, back in year one, Bird's Eye View would have gone ahead and recapped every single inning and every single moment of the, uh, the given game, but that seems a little ridiculous. So, we decided to uh, break it down into smaller chunks and, um, and, and really go through the nuts and the bolts. So, uh, Chris Tillman, I think, is the first person I wanted to start with, um, who went four and a third innings. And to be fair, yes, that's a usually short, shortened outing um, for what you expect a starting pitcher to do. But we've seen Buck Showalter do this in previous games where once you get into a jam or once you display that you can't get any further, he'll go out there and go right to the bullpen for it. But And fans howl for that. The moment absolutely. that something bad happens in a, in a high leverage game toward the end of the season or in the playoffs, you scream, why? Why isn't the starter pulled the moment there's trouble? There's, and there's actually a great article. Um, actually, I should take that back. It wasn't a great article, but it was an interesting article on baseball <laughs> prospectus, where uh, one of the art authors basically advocates saying the Orioles shouldn't basically use any of their starting pitchings. They should go for a complete bullpen game and just use all their relievers, um, and, and basically going against the Jays. And that would be a better option than going with a Chris Tillman or an Abaldo Jimenez. Um, of course. They kind of did that as it was in the right. game. But anywho, um, the one thing that was interesting for Chris Tillman was, you know, at the beginning of the game, his velocity was extremely down. It was right around like 88 to 99 miles per hour. And we've talked to us about this before on the podcast. Um, when Chris Tillman's velocity is down, you can normally expect bad things. However, Tillman did a pretty good job of mixing up his pitches and 
I would say from a sequencing standpoint, you couldn't accurately predict what Tillman was going to go with. And since he had his curveball working that night, um, Tillman really acted more as a pitcher with some of his pitch selection and almost basically trying to get into certain spots. So me personally, I thought Tillman pitched a great game considering what stuff he had that night. So I want to ask you about this stuff. Sure. You, you know that I am now a, a radio-only uh, experiencer of Orioles baseball. Yeah. Um, the difference between old Tillman and new Tillman, in my opinion, is the following. Mm-hmm. Old Tillman, when he hit his spots, hit his spots. And when he missed his spots, they were in the other side of the batter's box. Sure. Or they were four feet over the plate. Or they were bouncing in at 50 feet. So my question to you is this. Tillman obviously wasn't carrying his best stuff. That was obviously cl- not clear to someone who wasn't watching the game. Sure. But were his misses competitive pitches or was it he either hit his spots or he, it was laughable? Uh, on the majority of pitches, I think he hit his spots. However, there was a few instances which, you know, Jim Palmer has actually talked about during the season where you could see that overextension. So it almost like he went through and basically didn't have this correct release point. So there's definitely a few instances of that, which put him in behind counts in certain instances. So, um, I, I'd say overall, I was pleased with the performance, but the same standpoint of without the fastball velocity and with that ability to not have the same consistent release point, it certainly didn't help him get deep into the game. Sure. Okay. Um, so Tillman, not horrible, but it was a, a contributing factor. It was o- a contrib- only, only getting 4.1 innings from, from Tillman. Uh, also a contributing factor. The bats disappeared again in the playoffs. Correct. I and, mean, you had, what, four hits during the entire game. Um, it was interesting because when the game first started, the Orioles really weren't striking out at a prolific rate. They kept putting balls into play, and I kept saying, good, keep putting balls in play. Eventually— Just a matter of time. Just a matter of time before they before they drop. Um, but then they started striking out, and it just it kind of just was like, eh, they're getting sloppy with their approach. And I don't even really care about the whole— Oh, whether they're swinging on the first pitch or not, it just was um, a situation where they really weren't making good contact anymore. And when you weren't making good contact and you were having weak ground balls or infield fly balls, it's just like, eh, like it's basically the same thing as a strikeout in this case. So were they hero swings or was it just not working for them? I just don't think it was working for them. I just, it looked like the Orioles of the second half were just like, you know, it doesn't look like, like you're making that solid contact that we had seemed to seem to expect. So I got a dumb question. Sure, we, we've now experienced five good seasons from the Orioles, yes. five complete good seasons, including three playoff trips. Yes, and in each of those three playoff trips, the the offense has almost completely disappeared. Yes, right. We saw that in uh, what six games in 2012. So we got the, the wild card game, and then five games into the ALDS. Sure. In 2014, we saw it in, let's see, we get, we had uh, three games in the ALDS and then four games in the ALCS. And then, and then here we got the one game. So it's a very small sample size when you look at it. And the personnel is largely different outside of, you know, the regulars that have been here the whole time, Jones, Weeders, et cetera. What do you make of the fact that this offense seems to shrivel up and die in the playoffs. Is it because they play so hard and the regulars get so much time during the season? Is it because we're a home run only offense and that tends to shrivel in in the playoffs, which is actually something I think you've addressed. I've talked about before, which is not true. It's a myth. So what's the deal? What's the deal? Um, You know, if you look, I think most people come back and say, well, they're way too aggressive at the plate um, and they weren't patient. And to a certain regard, I can kind of agree with that. But the other point I would make is, there were a lot of balls that were strikes. And we've talked about this before during certain games where you and I have watched it. And when 
Um, pitchers have a tendency to pepper the zone. Um, the Orioles generally will swing at it. They're one of those situations where if the ball's in the zone, they're going to swing at it. They just didn't make good contact with it. And it, the big question is, why are they not making good contact with the ball? Why are they not squaring up on the ball? I have a t- personal tendency to think that some of their swings are a little loopy. We come back to Hunsu Kim. Hunsu Kim has a very short and pretty much flat stroke. But again, if you look at Chris Davis or you look at Adam Jones, a lot of them are more uppercut swings or basically not coming straight through the zone. It's more of like a lofted aspect to try to get fly balls. Scope and Machado have gone that way too. Right. Personally, I think, especially in Toronto, you saw a lot of times where line drives could easily go for home runs. The Mark Trumbo home run was a clear example of that. It came out the bat and you're just like, oh, well, that's a good hit, but it probably doesn't have enough distance. But sure enough, it cleared the wall. Um, I, I think that... You know, fly balls are great, especially with as much power as the Orioles had. But, you know, it's also really great to get line drives. And what we saw during the second half was line drive percentage basically bottomed out. I think it was like 14 or 15%. And when that happens, your BABIP goes down and you just don't put as many balls into play because you get a lot more outs as well. Also, might be a reason why some people saw a little bit higher increase in terms of infield fly balls. I also think, you know, 2014 notwithstanding, uh, the Orioles offense is probably better situated for a long series. You know, one one game, if it's feast or famine, if you get the famine, you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. Five-game series, a seven-game series, if you if you get the opportunity of feast or famine, you know, it'll probably work out better for you. We could say that, but the same thing could also be said about the Boston Red Sox, who just got swept by the Cleveland Indians. Uh, say it again. Say that again. Yeah. The, the entire series, the Boston Red Sox struggled to score runs. So, again, this comes back to once you get into the playoffs— Anything can happen. There's no way in my mind that I thought the Cleveland Indians would have swept the Boston Red Sox. Could they have won that series? I would have said it's possible, but there's no way I would have said, yep, the Cleveland Indians are definitely going to sweep the Boston Red Sox. Can I ask you about Ibaldo Jimenez? Sure. He he was <clears throat> he was surprisingly good down the stretch. Yes. He was he was a plus in a way that he had not been for a long time I would for the Baltimore I would Warriors. say that the only reason the Orioles were in the playoffs is because of Baltimore Menace. Yep, absolutely. What did you think of the choice to go to Bundy over, say, or to Obaldo over, say, somebody like Bundy? Uh, it makes no sense to me. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. I don't understand it. I understand that we were talking about, you know, going to Obaldo Jimenez over Chris Tillman to start the game, but it makes no sense to say, oh, well, Baldo Jimenez has struggled coming out of the bullpen for, you know, previous times. He obviously looked uncomfortable. Even when he came in, um, you know, he got the double play right away. Mm-hmm. But coming in that next inning, you could see the balls were basically just floating in the middle of the plate. Yeah. And they were just easy balls to hit. And you're just like, he just doesn't have it. You need to go to the bullpen immediately to get somebody because Baldo is going to give up this game. And you could just see the writing on the wall. It was like a slow car crash, basically. Yeah, I, I didn't think that was fair to anybody. I, that is not the spot for Baldo Jimenez. No. It's just not. It's just not. And, and again, the guy had been really good. I mean, he'd been good. Sure. And and I will I will I'll be the first to say, wow, he was really impressive. That was not putting him in a position to succeed. And so, I mean, I I don't I feel like I'm defending him here, but I got no hate for Baldo Jimenez because honestly, anybody else. Who you know if the if the concern was oh my gosh I need innings here this might go deep into extras uh, okay I hear that but, but that's not the right starter to bring in the one thing that was weird too was um, Abado certainly got up very quickly and had to warm up very quickly uh, and I raised the question too of you know as a starting pitcher you often have at times have a prolonged period to get ready 
whether it be you know you go out to the bullpen you have another 20 minutes or so before the game starts and you sit, you're warming up i wonder if quick having to get ready quickly especially for Roberto Jimenez who, who we know obviously has um somewhat mental issues in terms of the mechanics and stuff like that and overthinking things whether or not does he have mental uh, issues with his mechanics or does he have mechanical issues with his mentality we'll go with both we'll go with tacogirl.gif <laughs> yes <laughs> um but it would be interesting to say hey we're going to get Obaldo up and we're going to have someone come in for the next you know two innings and then once those two innings are up Obaldo, you're on and it's basically starting the game all over again to rush Obaldo in there again i don't know if it's the best move which again comes back to the aspect of the questions about the bullpen management during the game um and buck show now now being personally um you look at the majority of the game we were talking about Tillman getting the quick hook i thought buck show did a really nice job through the majority of it um, doing some bullpen management. I think um, the one benefit that we our tendency to overlook after the result was Michael Givens was absolutely oh, he was dirty. Amazing. He was absolutely dirty during that entire game. There was no way that anyone was, was touching him. Um, so Buck Showalter did a good job with the bullpen management up until around, I'd say, the ninth inning, and then we all lost our freaking minds. Basically, he d- he did well until he didn't. Um, you know, and I don't want to give up the goat here. Uh, I, had a, I had an interesting Twitter discussion with uh, Dave Stevenson, a uh, g- good friend of the program, uh, excellent baseball mind, and he does that hockey thing too. Um, had a great conversation because we had an honest disagreement that didn't end up with us shouting at each other in a very emotional time. So Dave, love you. Um, but here's the thing. I desperately wanted uh, Showalter to go to the closer <laughs> in the eighth inning. Oh, me too. I you know, So Brock came back out for the second inning, and he has been... He's been in trouble lately. He has been a troubled reliever after a very promising first half. And I said, stop screwing around. This is the time. This is the save opportunity. Now, that that ended up working, right? He we we got lucky, I think. Right. But if you you know, if I was sitting in the dugout, the eighth inning would have been when I burned my closer. And to a certain regard, the Blue Jays basically followed that same mentality where they went to get Asuna early in the game and they mm-hmm. said, you know, we're going to blow our closer now because we feel like this is a high leverage situation and we feel like we need to get through these innings in order to try to extend the game further. Um, but, you know, I there was I totally agree with you. There was many a times that I thought Zach Burton should have came into the game um, while the game was still in regular innings, basically. Yeah. And the Orioles managed to snake and weave out of it. I was just like, oh my gosh, like, we are playing with fire, and I cannot believe it is working. Um, but you can only play with fire so long before you get burnt. And in this case, um, the Orioles got burnt. And unfortunately, my prediction from last week, which was Zach Burton doesn't get into the game, managed to come true. Man, you should have d- gone double or nothing on fantasy boss. Yeah. That. Oh my goodness. There was also somewhat of a benches clearing uh, situation too. I-, I think personally, with Buckshaw Walter coming off the bench and running into the field with the whole beer can throwing incident too. So I'm going to give myself partial credit for that that's, one too. That's true. That's very good. So again, Roger Center once again um, showing um, some issues with throwing beers at Orioles players. Of course, we're reminded with the Nate McLeod situation. Uh, Isn't I, that where Jones had a banana thrown at him? No, that was San Francisco. Oh, that was San Francisco. Sorry, Toronto. Yeah. I, I, I misidentified my yeah. hateful city. But I don't understand. Like This was an issue last uh, year, um, not against the Orioles, but uh, against, I think it was the Rangers, where they started throwing stuff onto the field when a call went against them. Mm-hmm. I don't understand. If this is a prevailing situation and issue at Rogers Center, why did anyone think that, oh, you know what, we're going to keep the same policy? If they knew it was going to be that emotional and they've had a tendency before— why don't you just go to, we're going to serve all our beer in cups. It obviously is not that much of an issue. A predominant amount of parks serve their 
uh, beer cans in cups and basically, you know, that's, there's no issue here. You know, why did the Blue Jays think in this instance that, you know, this was never going to happen again? It's easy as a, as a fan base to decry another fan base, to judge another fan base. But I will say this. I'm sure that most of Toronto's fan base feels terrible about that. And again, and this I'm, is one yeah, person it, being a jerk. It is one person being a jerk. But it's also a situation where this has happened multiple times over multiple years. So I still raise and put the onus back on the organization, which is the Blue Jays, is saying, could this have been handled any better fashion to prevent such issue situations from happening. It's the same thing with like promotions now not giving away like, hey, let's give bats away in the stands. <laughs> What's the worst thing that can happen? Let's or, give out batteries on Santa night. Or, hey, let's do dollar beer night and let's see what happens with that. Like, what's the worst thing that could happen? I mean, there are certain things that you know are adding gasoline to the fire. It's like, you know what? Let's bring Kevin Gregg into the game now and just see what <laughs> happens. There are certain things you do not do at a baseball game and this is probably one of them. So what you're telling me is that Rogers Center is as it was as it was built to be a house of horrors for the Orioles. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I want to I want to say this, and I want to say it delicately. I absolutely hate that the Orioles lost. I hate it. But if it had to end like that, I am so glad that it was Encarnacion, who I have no love for. Rather than Jose Bautista, who was on deck, uh, well, he was he was on he, he was on base. Yeah. Oh, he, he was on base. base. Okay. He was on base. If it had been Bautista that had ended the game like that with a flip, yeah. I mean, from that, my only option would have been ritualistic suicide. Yeah. I mean, that is just. Whew. Yeah, you would have pulled out the samurai katana and basically fell right on it. Basically, um, all right. So here's the question: um, Baseball is still going on. If you didn't realize. So I choose not to acknowledge, but I know what's happening. So my question is, Jake, are you going to watch any of the MLB playoffs? And if so, are you going to be rooting for anybody? I'm not going to watch anything because I don't have any TV. That's true. But as I follow the playoffs, I do have a rooting interest. All right. Of all of the remaining uh, teams, I have to root for the Cleveland Indians. Yeah, I mean... I would think that you we, – that's my same thing. I, for the American League, you have to be rooting for the Indians. And it's not just because it's the Indians and Jays now, but it's that whole – it hasn't had a World Series since 1954. And I've thought about this. Okay. I've thought about this very hard because the Cleveland Indians, if I'm not mistaken, and, and you or, or one of the listeners can tell me if I'm wrong, I believe the Cleveland Indians are number two on the list of long World Series drought. Yes and no, because there's other teams that have never even... Well, yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, the the, the uh, Astros haven't gotten it because Texas they haven't Rangers. existed very long. The, the, Ra- the Rangers, yeah. The uh, Mariners haven't gotten there. Right. Of course, the Nationals, but they're young, right. young franchises. So there are, there are other organizations that have never had a World Series ever. But the Indians have a very long drought. Absolutely. Here's why I don't want the Cubs to win. Okay. If the Cubs win, they're no longer notable. Mm. Except for the really good talent they have and well, the yeah, young yeah, players. Well, yeah, yeah, but that happened. They've been good before. And Joe Madden. Yeah, yeah but they've been good before. They've and Jake Arrieta. They've had good clubs before. But they, they have, have the longest championship-less streak in baseball. Okay. They they are... Them not winning the, the uh, World Series is a baseball institution. All right, so can I counter this point? Please. All right, so this is my best counterpoint for this. If the Cubs win the World Series... The Boston Red Sox bandwagon will shrink because the Boston Red Sox bandwagon fans will transfer to being Cubs fans. No, I'm sorry, I don't buy that. I, 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 I don't buy that, and here's why. I, and I have I I have the excellent counterpoint. To all this. right, in Northern Virginia, mm-hmm. you have the option of either 
rooting for the team that you started rooting for in the 90s when the Orioles uh, gave up the GOAT. Yep. Or the Washington Nationals, yeah. who have won a ton of games, yep. who have been relevant, who have been fun to watch over the last, I mean, several seasons. Sure. So if you're going to bandwagon, yeah. you would have had the opportunity of this team, the Red Sox, going worst to first to worst to first to worst to first over the several uh, series seasons. So I think if you were going to bandwagon off, the natural progression is the nat- is the Nationals. I'm sorry, Jake. I'm going to have to disagree again because it comes back to um, the uh, – I-, I guess let's go through history. So if you were a bandwagon fan, you were co- clearly a bandwagon fan during the 90s, during the Jeter and the Yankees era. Sure. And then you got into the mid-2000s and the Red Sox had the miraculous run. So you basically said, oh, okay, the Red Sox are going to be the team of the 2000s. I'm going to root for do. the Red Sox. Yeah. And um, you, you cowboyed up, if you will. Right. Yeah. And then you basically come back now. And if the Cubs win, then you're going to say, great, the Cubs have all this young talent and they haven't been able to win in so many years. I'm going to say I've always been a Cubs fan and I've been a Cubs fan my entire life. And it's all about Wrigleyville. Now, you need to understand that I had an uncle who was a, who was a, a Cubs fan. And when I was 10 years old, he bought me a Cubs hat. And so I was a, I was a Cubs fan ever since. Right. That's the story. So, That's the story for every bandwagon fan. So, in my opinion, we should be rooting for the Cubs, if only to narrow down the Boston Red Sox fan base. All about the Indians. Okay. All about the Indians at this point. Well, I'm, I, I, either one of those was going to be okay with me, but I, I think it's important for us to go ahead uh, and maybe look forward a little bit to what is going to be upon us in in the next few months, um, and maybe to a certain regard. Uh, realize whether or not we are going to take a step back as an organization in the, ne- in the next year. In the postseason uh, breakdown, State of the Orioles, if you will, whatever you want to call it, in the interviews to follow. Dan Nuketa said that the Orioles won't make significant expenditures outside of the organization this offseason. I don't know. Scott, tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems a little early in the offseason for him to be doing nothing. Isn't that usually what he does late in the offseason? It is generally what he does late in the offseason, but we've talked about this before where the payroll is... um, extremely high going into next season. You and I were doing the back of the uh, napkin math earlier in the season. We said that next year looked like it was going to be about 135. I believe that Dylan Atkinson put out a a tweet today and said that uh, he had looked at the arbitration projections and said that it was going to be 137.5. So uh, if there were numbers involved, I'm sure you were the lead on that. So good job. But, it looks like it's going to be another offseason where Duquette does the the trash heap thing, right? Waits until it's almost too late, picks someone or some ones off the scrap heap, and in hopes that something works. And the thing is, is that on one hand, it makes you really, really angry as a fan. Sure. And on the other hand, it happens to work a lot. You know, I mean, it happens to work to the tune of the team was playoff bound three of the past five years, including a wild card berth, an ALDS berth, and an ALCS berth. And so there are two ways of looking at it, right? There are two ways of looking at it. I don't, I honestly don't know which side of this I fall on. I'm going to need yours and, and the listeners' help in, in making the decision here. But uh, column A, if you will, is, you know, that is good enough. All we wanted was winning clubs. The the team 
you know, for a reasonable price, we're, we're saying 130 to 150 or whatever it's going to be, can be constructed to be good enough to, to make a run for the playoffs. And, and we have a chance every year to win. And once you get into the, the tournament, so to speak, anything can happen. And that's exciting, right? Sure. And then column B is you have a window, a defined window, and the window is only so long. And I think you and I agree that it's through 2018. Sure. And if that's the window and an unspecified number of years of sucktitude and and rebuilding afterward. By the way, the last period was 14 years. If you have that window to work with, why not damn the torpedoes? Spend what you have to to use the best chance that you have to win a world championship. Because as we've discovered as Orioles fans, those are fleeting. Sure. And And to be honest with you, both are valid arguments. And I'm not sure where I fall because... Whereas I'm frustrated and crushed and and just decimated as a person and a, and a human being when the Orioles are bumped out of the playoffs, before we lost that game, before the, the wild card game was over, I thought to myself, I'll bet you this is a really entertaining game for people outside of Toronto and Baltimore, right? You have two really good clubs battling it out, duking it out, going to extras, and this is going to be an exciting end one way or the other. Now, I wasn't mature enough to, to handle it that way when the game ended. Sure. But up until the end, I had a good time with that game. And I had a good time over the season, which was frustrating and upsetting and exciting and wonderful and magical all in the same time. Sure. I mean, there's a few things here I think we've got to be careful of because you've come back and said um, the Oars have gotten three playoff appearances in the past five years by... Uh, basically going with this this notion of we're going to wait to the very last moment and cash in on free agents that have gone through the whole qualifying offer and you know now they have nowhere else to go, so we're going to pick them up. Which has yielded us a player like Nelson Cruz, for example, and, and certainly that was a positive. However, it also has yielded us players like Abaldo Jimenez. Mm-hmm. It's yielded us players like Giovanni Garrido. And it's also lost us draft pick upon draft pick upon draft pick. And sure, you're absolutely right. If you're going with this mentality of we're not caring about the future, we're just looking to try to get as good as possible in the next few years, um, you can go about doing that. But this year and also going into this year uh, is an example of by doing that and not having a bunch of minor league players that are in pre-arbitration, you quickly elevate your payroll. So for before arbitration players are active, in terms of active payroll that is being paid, I think it comes out to be like $109 million. So there's going to be another $30 million, we'll call it, on top of it in terms of arbitration players. So that's going to pay the salaries of a player like Matt Wieters and Mark Trumbo. And you're not going to be able to sign those guys back because you're basically getting the rest of your players back up to arbitration. You need to have that minor league talent in order to balance it out. I was thinking about this on the way home today, and I know people don't like to talk about war, but I like to look at war specifically. What is it good for? Yeah, I like to look at war in terms of the offseason. So typically a team needs to have a total team war of right around 35 in order to be playoff competitive. If you're around 35, you have a good chance of potentially getting into the playoffs. Doesn't mean it always works out. For example, the Twins had a 35 warish going into the season, and of course, that didn't work out at all. But it's a good bellwether. But it's a good bellwether, let's call it that much. So we come back to the value aspect. If you have 35 war and you're going to pay $8 million per one war, you're talking about $210 plus million. 
you can't have a payroll for 210 plus million dollars in Baltimore the, can't in the market that you're in basically. So you need to have players that are not going to be worth 8 million per war. You need to basically get surplus value, surplus value from players such as Manny Machado, who's still only going to get paid probably like, you know, eight to $9 million and is well worth probably close to 25 or $30 million. Um, Mark Trumbull was a great example of that this year, only getting paid, um, what was it eight million dollars? Yeah, eight and change or nine or something um, like that. And then basically putting up an easy sixteen million dollar season. So you need to have those surplus values, and you need to minimize the players that are basically negative surplus players. Players like Giovanni Garardo, who um, you know put up some innings, but definitely not the workhorse that you were expecting coming into the season. That was the only reason the Orioles went and got him, is to be that workhorse and maybe not be an ace. Be a clear number three, number four, and get you 200 innings pitched. By not getting 200 innings pitched, you had to put a bunch of other negative war players in there, such as Tyler Wilson, Mike Wright, Mike Wright, Vance Worley for spot starts to a certain mm-hmm. regard, where Vance Worley did really good out of the bullpen. So you even also had to play, um, you know, a dangerous game of Russian roulette with Dylan Bundy and say, we're not sure if Dylan Bundy's going to make it through the season. We're going to have to keep pushing him because we really have no other option. So, yeah, Jake, you're right. They have made three playoff appearances in the past five years. But is it good, you know, general managing? And is it, is it a good way to go about business? I don't know if it is. I think that we're making an assumption um, based off of results. But I think if you look at it, 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 it certainly, look, you say, that's probably not a healthy way to run an organization. Sure. And those, the totally fair point. And I and I'm about to make an argument, but I, I want to make it clear first that I can't I can't counter anything that you just said there because I, I think you stated it well. But with the way the the modern game is, and some people use the word tanking, call it whatever you will. But the Orioles cupboard is bare, right? Absolutely the, bare. The, the Orioles cupboard is bare, and at the end of 2018, I expect it's going to be a very uncomfortable period for the Orioles. Absolutely. My question to you is this. If the Orioles make the investment to win in the short term and then follow that up by two or three seasons of making the investment to not win, doesn't that bring them back into the area of stocking up their cupboard once more to being able to make another several-year run? And we're not talking about a system like the Cardinals right? of of extended excellence and we're not talking about the yankees or the red Sox or the giants or any of the clubs that do it right but we're talking about clubs like well the cubs just did this right and the astros just did this and the phillies are in the process of doing it now with by the way one of the better baseball minds that probably should have had the opportunity to do that here in baltimore so my question to you is this if the orioles find someone or have someone who can execute the tank you know, we're, we've experienced five years of good baseball. Sure. I won't say great, but but really fun baseball. Right. We've also experienced 14 years of the bad. Right. Are you as a fan willing to make the two or three year investment in, in awful baseball for the opportunity of another five year period of fun? Here's my problem with this. And I, I understand where you're coming from. But based off the draft picks that have been selected even during this good period and based off the draft picks that were selected during the dark ages – what makes you think that even if the Orioles have a top five spot, that they're going to go out and get talent that is going to revolutionize this this organization? Billy Rao would be a first one I would throw back at you. Matt Hobby would, yeah. would be another one I would throw back at you. 
A Brian, or, Ma- Brian Mattis would be another one I would throw back at you. Or anybody that he drafted. Right, exactly. So, um, again, the and it's not just the draft. Again, it comes back to um, the Orioles have had a very difficult time of drafting players. They've been very conservative in their approach in terms of drafting players. Their player development has been weak at best. Um, Rick Peterson still has a job. Rick Peterson still has a job. Um, there has been no international draft signings um, of major note. Um, for example, the Atlanta Braves, who, again— had a barren farm system only a few years ago, have um, basically gone to being a top 10 farm system by basically spending in international free agency and also trading away players um, in in order to get maximum value. Um, And the Orioles are doing none of these. And I understand why they're not doing some of the things with trading players. Mm -hmm. But you look at, um, you know, the trading away draft picks, which is one big thing that, you know, is, uh, you know, something that bothers me. And the Orioles, from a front office slash general manager standpoint, are certainly setting themselves up for um, potential failure, not just in the future, but potentially in 2017 and 2018, if they can't get any uh, significant success in, in the minors in the next few years. Yeah, and I'm not advocating for the tank, by the way. But what I'm saying is, at the end of 2018, they're going to be at an organizational crossroads. Right. And uh, the management team that they have is going to be gone or or at least their their contracts will expire. Some of the talent on the field will be gone. And when I say some, I mean everybody but Chris Davis. Right. Uh, And they're going to have to make the choice of either planning for that now. And I I mean, starting right now. Sure. Or playing through 18, hoping to make the playoffs and win a World Series again in either next year or 2018. And then at the end of 2018, deciding what to do. Uh, and I think that their hands will be pretty tied if they continue to do what they've done right now. And I'm not even sure if it's even 2018. I mean, we talked about 2018, of course, with the Buck and um, Dave Duquette and Manny Machado uh, situation. But even after 2017, the pitching uh, question mark is going to be yeah, there. Sure, Dylan Bundy is going to be available to you. Sure, Kevin Gossman is going to be available for to you. But two good pitchers has has proven not to be good enough. Correct, and there's nobody else available. And sure, payroll will drop, um, but there will be a question of you know how did the Orioles rebuild going into 2018 with your last year potentially of Manny Machado? Yeah, and, and you know the the history of the Ubaldo Jimenez and the Ivani Garrido signings and all that other stuff. Just as you've clearly indicated, they're they're terrible at not only developing pitching but also in the going out and getting it. So I agree. We're in a bad spot in 2018, but let's talk about 2017. Sure. Okay. Uh, let's talk about who's going to come back, who may be leaving, and what we think the options are for everybody you know, who who may or may not stay put, and then what the real needs of this team are. All sure. right. Sure. Can so, I uh, can I start with the outfield? Sure. So Adam Jones, of course, would be the yeah. one person coming back because again, there really is no center field depth in the minor leagues, so Adam Jones has to come back. And by the way, Adam Jones had a great season. He had a very good season. Uh, I wouldn't say it would be a great season, but he had a very good... Maybe great against my expectations. And, and the thing is, I said this two years ago, two seasons ago, that I thought that we would see the start of the decline for Adam right. Jones. I didn't see a decline year from Jones, and so that that is what I say, What I mean by when I say great season. I was expecting a, a, a fading Adam Jones, and I didn't get that. Now, to be fair, I will point out numbers because I'm a numbers guy. Um 96 weighted runs created plus for the entire season. Um, and he put up a 1.4 F war this this season. Mm. 
compared to a 3.6 last year, a 5.5 in 2014, a 4.2 in 2013. Um, I, again, I, I don't understand. He was playing so shallow back then. Yeah. I, Adam Jones, I, I personally think that Adam Jones um, put himself in a bad position by being at leadoff hitter. I think that, you know, there's no reason a leadoff hitter uh, should be having a 310 on base percentage. And um, again, that comes back to um, why was Adam Jones in that leadoff spot? Sure, it was cute for a few weeks, but it made no sense um, as the season went on and on and on and on. Yeah, he doesn't write himself in the lineup. I'll, I'll point that out. But the, I, I said it before, and I'll say it again. I think that Adam Jones's career will depend on how well he manages his ego as he as he ages, and at what point he becomes a left or a right fielder. Yeah, you know. And I, I think that the the real role for him will be to scoot over to left at some point. Sure. The problem with this is, again, there is no depth in center field for the Baltimore Orioles, so I don't know who you're going to be putting in there um, eventually. Now, you do have a few corner outfielders um, that are currently potential major league uh, assets. You've got Joey Rickard, who, again, maybe is AAA, maybe major league, but I think we'll easily see Joey Rickard up here and getting a chance to play one of the corner outfield positions um in, as of next year i think he'll get the the chance to compete for it in spring training and he'll make the club sure uh, and that the weird thing about him being a uh, rule five guy is that he had to make the club last year sure and i think that you know the the option will be to either give him a, a, a lot of playing time in triple a or to bring him up as either one of your outfield spots or the fourth outfielder i think he will make i think he'll make baltimore next right. year one of those surplus value players that you know we were talking about before would be Hunsu Kim, yeah. who again only made two million dollars this year, but easily had over a one plus WAR um, for for the team. So again, nice good surplus for the team, and he's coming back next year for I think only like four million dollars. Mm-hmm. So you would think you'd be able to pencil him in potentially with Kim and Ricker being a platoon situation again if you wanted to do that. Um, it would still leave you an outfield spot. Um, but I would also raise the question of, do we think that Kim may be moved? Um, you know, Buck Walter had an issue with him um, earlier in the season, not playing him. And there was also some really weird instances in, in August and September where Kim was not played in certain situations where Michael Bourne was played or Drew Stubbs was played or Nolan Rymel was mm-hmm. played. And it was very odd that Hunsu Kim was not played in, in certain situations. And again, big deal. So what? Who cares? Maybe they were just resting him because, again— you know, they just wanted to make sure that he wasn't getting tired. But it certainly feels like something is up there. So I wouldn't be terribly surprised to see Hunsu Kim move this offseason in order to get something else in return. I hear you. And, and it was weird, some of the usage. But I, I think that Kim comes back as your everyday left fielder. Or if not every day, then the two-thirds of the lion's share of a platoon. Yeah, well, it'll probably be more like a one-third. Well, you're right, two-thirds if he's playing against right-handed pitching. Yeah, yeah. you're right. Uh, you also got some, I guess, outfielders in Daryl Alvarez and Christian Walker, but in reality, they're at best a Nolan Reimold spot um, at, at best. Well, and the thing is that neither of those two will light it up in the field, but both have shown that they are capable of hitting the ball. Uh, Daryl Alvarez, I'm not a I'm not a big believer in Daryl Alvarez. I mean, you, neither you, am I. No, you've set it up, and so I feel like I, I have to at least provide the positives here. No. I don't believe in Daryl Alvarez. I don't either. However, in his cup of coffee, he was useful, and so I, I think that there is the possibility of that turning into a bat that can face major league pitching. And uh, Christian Walker, the only thing 
that he has going for him is the fact that he can hit. Kind of. And we, sort haven't, of. we haven't seen it at the major league level. Correct. But he's not an outfielder. He's, he's there not. because Chris Davis is signed long term. But I, I think that Christian Walker's bat plays at the majors. Not superstar level, but I think that he he could be a 25-man somewhere in the league. Maybe somewhere in the league, but I just don't see him being a significant impact bat. Everyone talks about the bat because he's probably one of the better bats that have in the Orioles system, but that don't mean any good thing. No, no, no. <laughs> and I, I don't want to overstate it, but I think that he's a major league bat, um, and I think that this club is weak in the outfield. Okay. So when you when you put that into account, he can't back up Jones in center, which hurts him from being the fourth outfielder. But right. all of the things being equal, I could see him getting yeah. playing time. When you point out the fact that you know the Orioles are, don't really have much outfield depth and um, they're looking to basically improve on the team, it comes back to, oh, maybe we should go out and get a free agent, which is kind of what the Orioles did by going out and getting Mark Trumbo to a certain regard. And also, I will come back and point out, and I hate to do this, but Dexter Fowler— yeah. You know, if the would have or- been a different season, if if the Orioles would have signed Dexter Fowler, it it's hard to imagine how good the Orioles would have been this season. Uh, having that dedicated leadoff hitter, um, and it would just been a, a completely different scenario. And, and also, Adam Jones being hurt earlier in the season, Dexter Fowler could have slid over to center field, filled in, and I wouldn't say great for Adam Jones, but could have done a decent enough job um, in, in terms of doing it. And maybe Jones has a better season by not rushing back. Absolutely, exactly. So, um. You know, free agents that are coming off the team, you've got um, Michael Bourne. Uh, you got he technically has an option, a club option, I think. Does he have a club option, really? I mean, he's got an option one way or the other. Okay. Mark Trumbo, um, Nolan Rymel, Drew Stubbs, and Steve Pierce. So I think Mark Trumbo's completely gone. I think the Orioles offer him a qualifying offer, but I don't see him possibly coming back. What do you think his value is? I would say it's probably right around three years and $45 million to somebody. I think that's exactly right. You don't think the Orioles pay that? No. Okay. Now... Remember, we got Nelson Cruz at $8 million. Yes. Okay. So you don't think that the Orioles will say to themselves, we can't make expenditures anywhere else because the money is too tight. We can't go find a free agent. Do you think there's a possibility that Mark Trumbo is the most impactful slash affordable slash signable bat on the market? No. I don't think he is the most... I think he might be, I think the Orioles probably could afford him, but I don't think he's the bat that the Orioles should be going after and getting. Okay. Uh, I, you seem to be teasing me, so I'll, I'll wait for your uh, for your uh, decision on who the, the most attractive bat is. But I don't think it's crazy to say that they might make a run at Mark Trumbo. I think they might make a run at him, but I think it's going to be something along the lines of two years for 26 to $28 million which I think that he would just come back and laugh at, basically. Yeah, he's, be he's like, going after the big He'd be like, no. This I, is his it's big either contract. Th- it's three years or four years, because this is going to be my last big contract, and I'm never going to have another season like I did this season. All right. Um, I'm not saying he's back. I'm just saying I think they'll make a, I think they'll make an effort. Yeah. Uh, Born, Trumbo, or I'm sorry, Born, Reimold, Stubbs, Pierce. I don't, I don't think they make a go at any of these guys, do you? I, I think the only player that they might make a go out there is Steve Pierce. Oh, you're... It's tugging at my heartstrings. I hope so. Slash, I hope not. I, I think they're going to make a make a play for Steve Pierce and try to get him back. Baseball me says don't do it. Heartstrings me says do it, do it, do it. It, it comes back to the Dan Duquette slash Buck Walter aspect, which was uh, as soon as Hunsu Kim was signed, Steve Pierce was out of here. So the question will be um, if Hunsu Kim is still on this team, um, is there a role and a spot for Steve Pierce? It's a good question. All right, let's move to the infield. So we've got. Basically, everybody coming back. We've got 
Davis, Scope, Hardy, and Machado. Um, also, in the organization, whether or not he makes the club, we've got Trey Mancini, who's technically a first baseman. Um, arbitration guys, we've got Ryan Flaherty and Paul Yanish. Paul Yanish was designated for assignment this week, just as an FYI. <laughs> yeah. The uh, went out and got some, like, Atlanta pitcher or something oh, like that. Right. Yeah. I didn't realize Yanish was the move for that. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, arbitration, we've got Flaherty. Yeah. Arbitration too expensive? Uh, MLB trade rumors said that he they were expecting him to get around one point seven million dollars. Uh, Nolan Ryan was paid one point three million dollars this year uh, to pretty much do nothing. <laughs> um, so it really is a question of is there a better utility option out there that could potentially replace Ryan Flaherty? Me personally, I think Ryan Flaherty um, basically gets kicked to the curb, and I think Steve Pierce is your new bench utility player. Wow. Um, who backs up shortstop? Manny. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that, that has a lot going for it because with the exception of shortstop, Steve Pierce does it all. Yeah. And if left, you ha- right field, corner, infield, right. I mean, heck, even second base. Correct. Wow. That's, uh, okay. Uh, you, you want to, and I, I, I love Ryan Flaherty. I think he's super useful, but, uh, um, I think you could even see Buck go crazy and be like, you know what? For just a few games, if we have to. I'm going to put Steve Pierce at second base and move Jonathan Scope over to third base just to get by for a few games, basically. All right. I mean, at that point, I mean, you can move Chris Davis over to third right. base. You, you have a number of options. Correct. Let me ask you about this. Also, technically an infielder, but not really. Sure. Pedro Alvarez. He's a free agent. Never, ever again say Pedro Alvarez is an infielder. No, no, I'm clearly not. Burn the glove. But uh, Pedro Alvarez made what uh, seven point five, seven seventy five, yeah, something like that. Nine point seven. He made he made like, money. I think it was seven point five off the top of my head. Um, I, I can pull it up really. Could quickly Could you for see you. Pedro Alvarez coming back and joining the Orioles? Um, Part time player hit what nineteen twenty home runs, uh, a feast or famine type of guy with more at bats. Do you think he's a useful piece? Okay, so my my opinion on Pedro, he actually only made five point eight million dollars this year. Oh, so it was. Oh, Pretty decent deal. 1.1 F4, uh, 22 home runs this season, 322 on-base percentage. Look, I, I could potentially see him coming back and playing for the Orioles because it really comes down to he's going to have to play in the AL. He's going to have to be mm-hmm. a DH for somebody. Mm-hmm. Which team is looking for a DH out there right now? And the Orioles could potentially say, you know what? We're going to make him our DH um, and, and, and roll with it. Me personally... I would let that go into the very last moment. And if he's available close to January or February, I'd make that move. But it's certainly not something I'm worrying about at this time. I don't think it's a major move or anything that I would feel bad about not bringing back or saying I need to prioritize it. Yeah, I don't get excited by Pedro Alvarez one way or the other, but I will say that I wouldn't hate seeing him back. 25.8% K rate, by the way, this year. So as much as people like to talk about the play discipline and him being able to draw walks, which was at 98 that is a hefty K rate, which we knew when we signed him. Yeah, yeah. So if you want to get that K rate down, there's a prime player to get your K rate down. All right, somewhere else to go in the infield. Then this, I think, is one of the big ones. Matt Wieters, free agent catcher, left in the organization. Joseph and Pena. Yeah. Um, so Matt Wieters is the proverbial question of: Are they are not are they not going to qualify and offer him again? Because mm-hmm. would he accept it again? Me personally, looking at the catching free agency that is out there right now, I would certainly qualify and offer him right now and take the risk. What's the worst thing that can happen? The Orioles are still in a constant aspect of flux of being like, eh, we're really not sure if we've got a catcher of the future or not. 
if you get Weeders back again for one more year, he's probably not going to get you the positive value like I talked about mm-hmm. as a surplus value player. But it allows you one more year to answer the question of who can fit this spot. And it gets you potentially into a better free agency class than what is currently this year. So I would offer the qualifying offer to Weeders in a heartbeat if he accepts it. Great, you've got Weeders for one more year. If he declines it, you're left with Joseph and Pena, and you'll probably either say, um, we're going to go out and you know get another catcher, or if you're really confident in Cisco and you want to try him out next year, you have Cisco. So I think Cisco is probably a good two years away, right? I think the next year he's going to, I think next year he'll play in AAA the entire season, and I think the following year he will come up and and do the Matt Weeders thing, whereas he catches part time behind a veteran, you know, the, the way that Weeders did with Zahn and eventually take over. So you're really three years away from chances go being a starter if he's the guy, right? If he can catch in this league, if he can hit in this league, if all the things, you know, if all the stars align, I think that that's his career path right now. So you're either at a point now where you need to pay Matt Weeders or someone else the money to bridge that three years, or as you've indicated, you need to kick the can one more year down the line. I hate, 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 hate the idea of giving Weeders another qualifying offer. I think if you can try to to land him for a bridge contract that comes in underneath the value of that qualifying offer over the you know the, the uh average, that's probably the way to do it. And when you look at Weeders, you say, is he worth three years forty five million? Probably not. Is he worth three years forty? Now nah, you're getting closer. If you can get him for under three years forty million dollars, I say you pull you pull the trigger and you do it. Okay. I mean, I, I see what you're saying there. I personally think that you eventually have to just say, um, let's see what we have in Chancisco, whether it's good or bad. Um, the only other catcher I think that is a possibility out there for the Orioles is Jason Castro, hmm. um, who I don't think I'm like extremely happy with. But I think, you know, if you're choosing between Caleb Joseph, who displayed absolutely nothing this season, um and you know besides testicular fortitude right but i think jason castro offers a interesting option it's basically a caleb joseph version um with a little less pitch framing um but uh, jason castro with the astros this year 1.1 f4 previous season 1.5 f4 he could certainly produce decent of value um if you want to do um, a long-term catching deal if you don't think chancisco is your option does the wilson ramos injury yeah make the market for Matt Weeders more expensive. Yes. Okay. Which is why I would offer the qualifying offer. Okay. I think that's the best argument that that could be made. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the relief core. And I feel like the relief core is harder to talk about because there are just so many people involved, but the definites, I think it's pretty much easy because there's nothing that's going to be done here. Okay. Cause so you've got Britton O'Day, Brock given, um, Worley is a question mark because the question is, you know, do you bring him back or not with the money? I think the Orioles do bring him back. TJ McFarlane is gone because they've already designated him for assignment before. He was basically mm-hmm. just being held on to. Um, Hart, Drake, Bridwell, Wilson, Wright, blah, 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 blah. Those are all your Norfolk shuttle folks who, again, are going to be dirt cheap to pick up because they're all in pre-arbitration. So yep. I don't think there's anything there that makes me say one way or the other saying, you know, the only question is, do you think Donnie Hart is your loogie going forward? And my opinion is yes. Yeah. I think Donnie Hart is your loogie. I don't think there's a better loogie out there that you want to be spending money on. So there's nothing that I would do 
with my relief pitching core going into next season. I would just say we're rolling with it and we're going to Norfolk shuttle it again. Okay. And so you look for a, a bullpen that has basically two spots of flexibility for the shuttle. That is correct. Okay. That is All correct. Right. That means we need to say a couple of tough goodbyes. First and foremost, Tommy Hunter. Yeah. I mean, Tommy Hunter was a fill in at best. Um, it, yeah, it happens. I mean, maybe he gets signed back again and someone else that gets jettisoned and he just goes to a one man shuttle, but I doubt that's going to happen. So Tommy Hunter, thanks for grabbing some beers for us and giving, giving two claps and a woo, but, um, we'll, we'll, we'll talk to you in the future. And then Brian Dunsing would be the other one that the Orioles are losing, which again, so well. don't really care. Starting pitching is the big question mark, in my opinion, from the pitching staff standpoint, where you've got Tillman, Gossman and Bundy, who of course will be back next year. And then you've got, Jimenez, Miley, and Gallardo. Um, and the question is, you don't want to be carrying all three of those um, in, into next year. Is it possible for you to unload one of them and get something back in return? No. I think you got to cut whoever you don't want. See, I think that you can get rid of someone and just eat some salary and trade trade someone away. Someone is going to be interested in at least one of those pitchers based off a of track record. Why? Who 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 do you think you can get a deal for? If the Orioles were able to trade for Wade Miley, someone is going to be saying, I'm going to be interested in taking up a Giovanni Gallardo and seeing if I can make him work in my park or in a Bald Jimenez in a contract year and basically see if they can make magic happen again. So someone is going to pick up Jimenez or Gallardo on the cheap with the Orioles paying some of the money. And the Orioles obviously have already shown that they're willing to eat money in certain instances. But one of those guys is going to be gone. God, I hope so. Personally, I, mean, I don't think it's Gallardo, but yeah. that's just me. Yeah. All right. So that that's basically, you know, who who comes back and, and whatnot. I, I agree that the 25-man roster doesn't have a whole lot of flexibility for additional pe- people coming into it. Let's talk about what their major trade assets are. So we have holes that we've identified. Sure. The major deficiencies are, are real starting pitching, catching depth. I, I would say also designated hitter in right field. What are our major trade assets at this point? Okay, so the obvious ones are Zach Britton. Um, Jonathan Scope, I think, is a name that really should be considered. If you cannot get Jonathan Scope under contract, I'd say this offseason, I think you really need to start giving consideration to, can you go out and find someone to play second base for you and, and get a, a, a haul? Um, you know, people continually talk about wanting to reshape this club and reshape it to be much more of an on-base club, get your on-base percentage up. And the really one way to do that is to trade a player like a Jonathan Scope, who, again, is a power hitter. Um, great defense in terms of turning the double play. But the question is, what could the Orioles potentially get for a Jonathan Scope um, in order to bolster some of their weaknesses and deficiencies that they currently have or bolster their farm system as well and go from there? Zach Britton, you think there's a real chance he could be gone? He's going to make more than ten million this year, and he's, that, he's not going to make more than ten million this you year. You don't think he'll make ten million? No, the tr- since he's only in his second year of arbitration, it, his uh, projection is only going to be right around like six point eight million dollars. I'm not sure you're right about that. I I think he's going to make over ten this season. I thought he he made six something this season. Mm, I'm almost positive um, that he's not making over 10 next season, but uh, because Jim Johnson, the, the breaking point, you know, with him being terrible as well. Oh, you're right. He made 6.8 this million. year. Yeah. So it might, you might be right about that. So he made 6.8 this year. So he will be making close to $10 million next year. So you're right. It's probably right in that sweet spot now of, 
um, how much can you play pay for a closer? Now the difference is ten million for Jim Johnson versus ten million for someone who's been the best closer in baseball is a different is a different thing. But you know he just went from being magic where everything he touched turned to gold, and it's not a given that that's going to just come back. Sure, right? And we haven't seen any trending. You know we, we're not saying that that Zach Britton's going to be bad, but if any time has presented itself to to uh, part with Zach Britton, I mean, this is the time, right? Absolutely. I mean, you've got completely high value. It's weird. I, I'm looking here at MLB Trade Rumors, and they're projecting Zach Britton to only get $6.9 million. That seems awfully low Yeah. Um, for... Particularly because the market for closers has just exploded. Oh, this is from last year, so never mind. I, okay. t- I take that back. I take that back. Yeah, I mean, when you look at, at deals like the one that O'Day got, and you look at deals like the one that Andrew Miller got, you look at the way that that bullpen guys are now valued. You look at a, a Chris uh, a Zach Britton, and he's gonna he's gonna play anywhere. All right, so I'm now looking at the real post, which I apologize for. Yeah, Zach, MLB Trade Rumors is projecting that Zach Britton is going to make $11.4 million in arbitration this offseason. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Um, now, he is worth, you know, two plus war. Um, sure. Again, so you've got $16 million of value. But I come back to, is Zach Britton going to be as good as he is right now? The answer probably is no. We've seen what closures can get in the marketplace. What better chance right now than to basically restock and and, yeah. and get maximum value. He's he's valued above what uh, what Andrew Miller's getting paid annually. Correct. You know, and this is I'm not saying I want him gone, especially if you could do it similar to what we were just talking about. If you could package him with like a Giovanni Gallardo mm-hmm. and a Zach Bridge and say we're going to have to deal basically both of these in order to free up additional payroll. Now you're dealing dealing with something a little bit more interesting as well. Yeah. Is there, is there anything else that I'm not considering there? I mean, we've looked at the bullpen. We've looked at starting pitching. We've looked at the uh, the position fielders. I, I know mean, people have talked about Manny Machado, but I think that's a ridiculous aspect. That's a nuclear option. Priority number one this offseason is Manny Machado contract, Manny Machado contract, Manny Machado contract. Mm-hmm. They should literally just buy a an apartment complex for the agents for Manny Machado and say you are not to leave Baltimore um, without a contract, basically. Okay, but if you look at this offseason, they come away with a Manny Machado extension and nothing else. Was it a successful offseason? Yes. All right. All right. Yes, it would be a successful offseason. They have no choice but to build around him then. You know, I mean, because looking out, you know, you'll have Manny Machado and Chris Davis, and that's the only, you know, forward-looking money you've got. Right. You've got to build around that. Of course, there there is one big other point that I think we're failing to mention in terms of going into 2017. It's the big elephant in the room. Um, and, and it comes back to the talk of Buck Walter. Should Buck Walter be back with the Baltimore Orioles as the manager for the team? Well, why wouldn't he? Well, look, I understand to a certain regard, you know, Buck Walter has done a great job over the past few seasons, but there's a lot of oddities. And I'm not just talking about um, the AL wildcard game. You and I have talked about Buck Walter having issues this season more so than any other season, which is interesting. Um, but there's a greater dynamic that I think is of concern, and that is Buck Showalter and Dan Duquette have been having, um, as it were, a, 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 basically a contest over who should be running this organization. So Hunsu Kim was the um, individual that was picked by Dan Duquette to basically be the outfield replacement um, and Steve Pierce was not tendered a contract. Buck Showalter really wanted to give a contract to Steve Pierce, 
Um, but by Hunsu Kim signing, Steve Pierce is not available. Buckshaw Walter didn't really want to play Hunsu Kim to start the season. He's been hesitant to play him throughout the season as well. Um, and then Dan Duquette, again, like we talked about earlier in this in the segment, has made a plethora of um, bad moves in terms of the starting pitching. Um, my, my question would be, you know, can an organization thrive when it's basically uh, internally competing against itself with the manager basically going against what the GM is doing and the GM basically going against what the manager wants to do? And over the past few seasons, you know, there was always a really good accord. But ever since Dan Duquette was offered that job um, to go to Toronto, and of course that job is completely off the table now, there has been this headbutting session between Buck Walter and Dan Duquette with, you know, the issues that Buck Walter has shown being a manager this year. I really raised the question of, you know, is it time to make a dynamic move, get Buck Walter out of the dugout, put him into an office position in the front office? Personally, I'd make, you know, Brady a GM, put Buck into an advisory role to Brady and get Duquette out of there and really streamline the front office into a more centralized aspect of, you know, this is how we're running it. And it's not this butting of heads between parties. All right. I hear you. I hear you. But here's the thing. The the fans were screaming, that's it. We got got to get rid of Show Walter after the wildcard game. And I know that was emotional, right? And that's in part why we're discussing this now a week later, right? Because we can't handle and deal with pure unbridled emotion sure but if your argument is that buck showalter needs to go because dan duquette is no longer fit for his job i'm not sure that's a one-to-one and i'm gonna i'm gonna focus my point by naming it's not just a fit for doing the job it's the aspect of you know i i I personally think that dan duquette actually is a pretty decent gm but you can't have this constant headbutting 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 and not working to a centralized goal so this town isn't big enough for the both of them pretty much basically but do you think that discord within the organization is a good enough reason because and i'm, I'm gonna bring this back to dave tremley i'll come back to diamondbacks basically and discord in the organization okay i'm, <laughs> I'm gonna go back to dave tremley sure and i'm gonna say this dave tremley was was not a major league manager yeah let me get my cigar out by to- the way. totally i mean yeah. he's just not fit for the job yeah period However, and I can't believe I'm saying however, he was terrible, right? He was terrible. Yeah. He should not have been a major league manager. Sure. However, ugh, the talent that he was given was not going to win. Sure, sure. Right, he he couldn't make a good move. Right. And I counter my, my argument about Buck Showalter with Dave Tremblay, because Dave Tremblay was bad at what he was doing and couldn't do anything with the talent he was given. Sure. But I look at the talent that Buck Showalter was given. Yeah. And I look at it as a fringe team, a fringe playoff team. Sure. And the only way that they're successful is with a manager like Buck Showalter. I think that this team being an 89-win team going to the wild card and, you know, maybe they make a deeper run or maybe they get this is the best case scenario we could have hoped for based on the talent. And you and I both picked wins in the upper 70s because the pitching wasn't there, sure. because it was feast or famine offense, and all the other things that, that is true about this team. Sure. And the only way I believe that it is successful is because of the best case scenario with some of the talent situations and responsible and and quality leadership in Buck Showalter. And I don't think that removing him from that role with the the talent level being the same, without making any other major additions to the team, sure, 
is a recipe for success. I come back to the one point that you were making was saying, you know, you know, we've been a fringe team for the past five years. We've gotten to the playoffs. But eventually, you know, I come back to the summer I read the Dan Connolly book and reading through all the stories. And it struck me of, you know, talking about that 66 team. And, you know, they were talking about it and saying we had a bunch of fringe teams during the mid-60s. And it was only once we made that dynamic move and we really put ourselves into being a championship team that we took that next step. And the Orioles have not made that championship move in order to basically go out and get that Frank Robinson or make that significant move. The Orioles are way too conservative in their approach, and they need to make that dynamic move. Making that dynamic move to say, we're going to streamline the front office, we're going to eliminate this headbutting, and we're going to bring in a manager that can oversee what Buck and Brady want to implement, I think is an easy way to do it. We've talked about this before. You know, Buck changed the culture of the team. The best way to change the entire culture of the organization is to put Buck into the front office. So Buck, you know, needs to, you know, I, there's, I think Buck has a great baseball mind, but I think also, you know, Buck showed off a little bit of some of the issues that he has where when people started questioning about why the moves were made with Zach Britton, he never came back and said, that was a bad move by me. He's just, he was very stubborn about it. And it's the same thing where we got into why when Buck Showalter first came here, why we were concerned about the stubbornness aspect and if Buck Showalter can't learn from the mistake that he made and even admit that he made a mistake, then he shouldn't be the manager for this team going forward. Yeah, but you're talking about raising the stakes of his mistakes. I'm asking, wow, that was really poorly worded. But the thing is that it's— I'm okay, I'm okay with him making mistakes in the aspect of, you know, everyone makes mistakes in terms of the general manager aspect. But again, I don't even want him to be the general manager. I want him to basically have Brady be the general manager— and for Buck to basically, you know, not so much be, you know, said, okay, you no longer have a role with this team, this organization, but we don't want you to, you know, take a role that is a general manager at this time. We want you to still assist the team. Do you think he'll take that? I think he would, actually. I think he would still take that, and I think he would be okay with that. I don't know. I mean, that that seems like an awful slap in the face. And, and maybe, you know, at the end of his contract, if he's, you know, no longer interested in the travel and the everything else that comes along with managing, you know, because it'll, it'll be, what, is in his mid-60s by then. Maybe. But I think that, that Buck Showalter is used to being the face of an organization, and he's comfortable there, and he's used to calling his shots, and he's comfortable there, yeah. and he won't settle for second fiddle. You're, you're right. He's uncomfortable there as the second fiddle to Dan Duquette in all the ways that you just prescribed. Right. So, again, I think it's fine if we want to keep that way, if we want to just go back to the aspect of, by this mentality, we're probably going to be a fringe playoff team through 2018, which we both have criticized and said this is probably all it's going to be. So for the next two years, based off of how payroll has been and based off the conservative approach, at best, this is a fringe playoff team. So more than likely, you know, this team has a chance to get to the playoffs, but in reality, they'll probably not be one of the stronger teams ever going into the playoffs, which means that they're going to have a hard time doing it. So uh, once again, we're going to have some really fun seasons potentially to watch. But at the end of the day, when we get to 2019, we're going to look at it and say, we never got a championship out of it and nothing is good to happen. So, you know, it really is interesting because it's been raising a lot of questions, at least to me. And we've been doing this podcast for five years, Jake. And, um, you know, you know what happens after five years? No, do we get a gold watch? 
No. Well, in Major League Baseball, after five years, people enter into free agency. So maybe it's a good opportunity, you know, for me to maybe shake up the shake up what is bird's eye view to a certain regard and um, maybe uh, allow it to streamline its approach and, and turn better. So, Jake, as of right now, uh, I'm going to be declaring free agency. You can't. No, no. We have negotiations going on behind the mic, and you know well as I do that you can't simply declare free agency at this point. Jake, you gave me the qualifying offer. I'm rejecting it. You can get whatever draft pick that you want. I mean, it'll probably be some terrible Kansas City Boulevard Brewing Company beer again. But, Jake, I'm going into free agency. I'm going to test the market. I'm going to see what's out there. And hopefully, you and this podcast can get better in the process and not just be, eh, we were fringe-ish is the best way to describe it. I don't appreciate you handling this through the media the way you are. You know what? You want to declare free agency? Declare free agency. All right. I'll declare free agency. Free agency. Congratulations. Good luck finding somebody out there that wants to deal with your vocal stylings. So that's it. You're just going to, after all this time. Yeah, I, I, I think that's about it for me. So I'm, I'll, I'll let you finish up, but I'm going to pop on out of here. He's actually walking out the door. Well, at least maybe I'll redecorate SD Studios. Look, folks, I'm very sorry that you had to listen to that. Um, and with that, I guess uh, for the first time, I will uh, I will go ahead and on my own, I will uh, I'll blow the save. Well, I wanted to blow the save this week on a happier note, but uh, I'll do this instead. Baseball hurt me this past week. Baseball hurt me very much. Um, it was terrible after the Orioles' loss. Uh, I stayed up and stewed and tried not to drink and eat my emotions. Had a tough time sleeping after the Orioles' loss. And I stayed away from Orioles' coverage for a few days. And so, with all apologies, I missed something that uh, I thought was kind of important. I missed a tweet from John P. Angelos and a corresponding post on MassInSports.com by Olivia Witherite, which focused on a uh, Facebook post in way of an open letter to Adam Jones from a Blue Jays fan. And I can't read it to you because it's super long. It's by uh, Craig Fortier, and I will post the link on this week's show notes. Uh, But Craig basically said this, look, Adam, I hate your team. <laughs> I root openly against them, but I appreciate and respect the way that you stand up for the things that you do stand up for. And I, as a fan, uh, am making the commitment to uh, stand up for the same things in my own community in the way that I can affect things when it comes to social injustice, when it comes to race relationship uh, relations in my country of Canada, as well as, as you know, in my own community. It was a much better stated uh, letter than I just boiled it down to, but it was kind of beautiful in a way. Uh, As a baseball fan and as a person, it's something that's very easy to connect to. And in the pain of watching my baseball team's season end, it was kind of uplifting to see somebody who, uh, who was a big fan of baseball, a big fan of Adam Jones, and a big fan of the human race saying something important uh, that came out of such an ugly game. So uh, with that, that is my uh, 
is my blowing of the save. From here on out, uh, here's a little housekeeping. Uh, so baseball bird's eye view is going to go into off season mode. <laughs> we usually do that where we slow down to, uh, to, to a less than weekly, uh, format. Your weekly source of a lack of insight and baseless opinion will probably, uh, go to monthly at a minimum. You can expect to see an episode in November, December, and January. And from there, you know, maybe bi-weekly in February and March, starting up weekly again to coincide with the 2017 season. You know, who knows? Maybe we'll uh, get a wild hair now and again and, and do a an extra episode. But uh, without Scotty, it may be <clears throat> a little difficult to get things uh, running. So uh, do me a favor. Make sure that you're following the blog. We'll be sure to get back into writing. Make sure you're following us uh, over at Baltimore Sports Report, as uh, I'll probably do some extra innings because I have a hard time not running my mouth. And, uh, you know, you can always check us out on social media, particularly at Bird's Eye View, B-A-L, on Twitter. I've said that we're not going anywhere, uh, and I have (laughs) some fun ideas in the works now that I'm unbridled from my former shackles. Uh, But as I sign off here for episode 184, I think it's as good moment as any to thank you so much for listening. This is not the end of the show. This project has been so much fun. We're beyond humbled that some of you out there make this show a regular part of your Orioles fix. Thanks for listening. Thanks for reading. Thanks for the interaction on social media. Thanks for the iTunes reviews. Thanks for stopping us at the ballpark and introducing yourselves. Put simply, thanks for keeping this crazy idea alive as it has been for the past five seasons. I don't know. seems like uh, Bird's Eye View has some signings to make. The real question will be, will we make significant investments outside of the organization? I think that's something we'll have to address in next next episode. And with that, Baltimore and beyond, sidle up to the window. It's a long wait for spring. Adieu, adieu. It's over. Go home. Go.